0: trail and ultra runners what is going on welcome to another episode of the coop cast as always i'm your host coach jason coop and this episode of the podcast is all about training and racing at altitude and training and racing in the heat and how to leverage those two conditions to improve your performance on the podcast today I have the incredible Lindsay Golich. Lindsay and I have known each other for many, many years, going back to our intern days when we were first getting our teeth cut, working with endurance athletes. And now Lindsay is an exercise physiologist at the high altitude and environmental training center and athlete performance lab at the Olympic training center in Colorado Springs, Colorado. On a daily basis, Lindsay is advising the best athletes and the best coaches on how to get prepared for altitude and for the heat. I had a lot of fun with this conversation. Every single conversation I have with Lindsay is a hoot. We always go back to our coaching roots and we always go back to what is best for the athletes that are preparing for these types of events. So let's get right into it. Here's my conversation with Lindsay Golich. First off, the High Altitude and Environmental Training Center and Athlete Performance Lab. Do you have to say that every time you introduce yourself?
1: Um, no. So, <laughs> um, Randy Wilber, who's one of our senior physiologists, he came up with the acronym HATSI for High Altitude Training Center. Um, and... That came from uh, some of our earlier physiologists you mentioned like J.T. Kearney and a few others people that had been there where they started doing you know this live high train low experimentation you know many many years ago Um, and that really was the evolution of training at altitude and how it all works. So uh, we call it the Hatsy, and I always joke, too, because I always, when I say to a lot of people, high altitude, they think we're always going up in altitude, and I would say, you know, 90% of what we do is we actually bring the room down to sea level, since we're, we are at altitude, um, rather than it going up in elevation, we're always bringing it down, um, and then our athlete performance lab, yeah, it's just, you know, there's a, it's a mouthful, but there's a lot that goes on in there, um, so uh, there's no good acronym for that. Uh,
0: <laughs> it's, but, it's just a mouthful, Lindsay. I'm just, is, I'm just giving is. you some. We've crap. got a
1: lot of acronyms, so. <laughs> uh, yeah.
0: Well, maybe we won't. We won't add to that. So, but before we go any further, let, let's like get kind of like a physical description of like your neck of the woods with the high out, alt- the hatsy, in the yeah. athlete performance lab. Like, get, give the listeners a little bit of a scope of. Like what the room is like and what the like the tools and the, you know, all the different toys that you have to like test the athletes and things like that.
1: Sure. So our Hatsy, we're located in the area called Sports Sciences at the Olympic and Paralympic Training Center in Colorado Springs. And in Sports Sciences, it's not just exercise physiology or sport physiology. We also have dietetics, we have psychology um, and technology in there. Um, So there's a few of us that share that space. And the nice thing is in our environmental room and also in the athlete performance lab, we're able to have that shared space and be doing multiple different things depending on what sport group is in there. Um, But in our high altitude training center, the Hatsi, it's about a 900 square foot room. And in that room, we can change three environmental conditions. We can change the altitude, Uh, We can change the temperature and we can change the humidity. So really with altitude, we can go down to sea level. We can go up to about 23,000, 24,000 feet. Um, The temperature, we can go to negative 5 Fahrenheit. And then we can also go to about 115 to 120 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, Humidity, we can get to single digits humidity and then 100% humidity. Um, so, really, the, the objective there is that we can match any training and competition environment in the world that athletes are preparing for. And, and that even goes for winter sports. We've had quite a few winter sport athletes come in for equipment testing or even just uh, testing of different uh, training conditions as well. Um Obviously, we can't get to negative temperatures, but where you look at a lot of the uh, Winter Olympics have been held over the last uh, few cycles, it hasn't been in very, very extreme cold locations.
0: And I remember when um, the Rio Olympics were coming around and you and I were having this conversation, a lot of what you were doing there were, it was kind of like worst case scenario types of testing with the athletes. You bring the athletes in and say, okay, based on the historical patterns of Rio, This is about how hot and how humid it's going to get. Let's put you on a treadmill. Let's put you on a cycling ergometer and see what, see, just see how you react to that environment in a little bit of an educational lesson for the coach or for the coach and, or sorry, for the athlete or for the coach and the athlete. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. And, and, and I would say we were lucky that we had the room. We officially opened up the room in 2015. Um, with plenty of time to get ready for the Rio Olympics. And we were able to target track and field, our marathon, our distance team, triathlon and cycling were the three sports that we really put the emphasis into. So post-Rio and getting ready for Tokyo, we've really been able to expand that to quite a few other athletes and not just our traditional endurance aerobic type of athletes. Um, But yet we've done all our triathletes, all our cyclists, quite a few of our distance runners, We've now had all our boxing athletes, um, a lot of our wrestling athletes, um, almost a lot of our uh, Paralympic programming uh, that is a resident program for triathlon, cycling, track and field as well come through. Um, so we're doing the same thing is that we can say, hey, here's the conditions of Tokyo and they are going to be extreme. So Tokyo is going to be one of the hottest uh, Olympics that we've had to date. It has the potential to be there. Um delaying it a year doesn't change anything. The dates are exactly the same from 2020 to 2021, just one year later. Um, So we'll put athletes in the environment of their competition of what we anticipate it to be. um, And or we can go to what the extreme might be. And then we can see how their performance is impacted. Um, And so what we've done or what I've done quite a bit of is what I've called our heat stress testing. So, you know, we, we set the athlete up to fail, basically. So I want them to reach a point of failure because um, it gives me an idea of what they can tolerate. And then we can then work with their coaching, nutrition, anyone else on their performance team and work backwards of saying, well, we know this is a limitation. So how can we minimize or delay the onset to that point? Um, or what can we do differently in training so we don't reach that point at all? Um, and I feel like we've been really impactful with a lot of our athletes to better understanding that, you know, simple things like in a marathon running race, um, you could go out really hard in that first 10K, but what is that cost over that last 5K of the race? You know, if your internal core temperature just uh, gets too hot too quickly, can you actually begin to limit it or bring it back down? And so we've been able to really pinpoint what that means for each athlete and different pacing strategies and nutritional strategies and hydrational strategies as well.
0: And what do you consider the point of failure? Like, I think this might get into some of the ways that you're actually monitoring the athletes. So you're having them go hard in a hot environment, but like paint that picture a little bit more for the listeners to, to like, let them know like how hard and how hot these athletes are having to train in.
1: Yeah. So pretty much for our heat stress testing, we have three points of failure. Um, The first one is if your internal core temperature Exceeds 104 degrees Fahrenheit um, or about forty-two degrees Celsius is our cutoff.
0: That's friggin' hot. Yeah. That's so really it's hot. hot. That's yeah. Really you know, normally
1: hot. if you, you know, if you if you have a child and they have a temperature of 102, you're, you're going to, you know, the hospital or the ER, right? That's you know, put them in a cold bath. So we have a core temperature of 104. Um, we'll set a timeline, like a time limit based upon the athlete of saying like, it could be a 60 minute test, 70, 90 minute test. It just depends on, on what uh, demographic is in there. Um, Or if the athlete can't physically go anymore. So we've had people pass out, we've had people get sick. um, People just say they just can't take another step, you know, so there's a little bit of everything and all three situations or scenarios happen all the time. And, you know, I've had the same athlete come in multiple times, and we've had the three different scenarios happen three different times. Um, And that's also a learning curve. Uh, We had an athlete that came to us, and we were figuring out uh, traveling across multiple time zones. So they had actually just returned from being a, a competition in Asia, and they were testing with me two days later. So what did that uh, additional stress of travel due on their core temperature regulation and for that athlete it was worse so you know it's helping us figure out how close to a competition date can we arrive to our point of you know our destination point point. Um, and obviously two days is too short and we knew that in advance but we're really trying to test the limits of saying if I'm having to chase points all over the world you know do I need to be there two days before five days before seven days before so Um, you know, we can see different things happen for different reasons and in the same athlete, even if their fitness is really high.
0: So you, you've got these athletes, you put them into a really hot, really stressful environment. You take them to the point of failure and then you're working with them and their team, their coach, their nutritionist and things like that and saying, okay, here's where the athlete was failing. Here's why they were failing. Here's some different interventions that we might want to try to alleviate this point of failure. I know that all of those, and you you and I are going to be really like-minded on, on that, is where it's very individualized because mm-hmm. the conditions are different. The athlete is different. They're coming from a different time zone, where they failed, why they failed, all that other stuff. But for the listeners out there, are there any broad brushstrokes in terms of the interventions that you apply in those scenarios where the athlete gets over hot, they can't take another step, they puke, they're doing all these other things? Are there any like common things to like pull out of that?
1: Yeah, for sure. There are. I mean, I think the number one thing is going into an extreme environment, whether it be heat, humidity, altitude, you want to be as fit as you can be. So that's like general goal number one. Um, So if you have a a race, a running race or triathlon race, and it's, you know, somewhere in the south in the US, or you're traveling to a different country um, for a competition, you just want to make sure your fitness is high, that will help you one tolerate those extreme conditions better. Um, the second one is hydration is really important. You know, we hear a lot about don't drink too much or drink you're not drinking enough or you're drinking, you know, everything is in between. Um, but ultimately, uh, super easy. You can do pre and post body weight and figure out what your sweat rate is. And then you're trying to hydrate accordingly. You don't need to come out even at the end, but you're trying to minimize your losses. So we're trying to minimize, uh, you know, uh, a weight loss. If you have a one day event, we don't really want it to exceed at the extreme end, six to 10%. A lot of literature out there says two to 3%. And I agree with that in a training perspective of if I have multiple training sessions a day, or I'm doing multiple races back to back days. But if you have like a one day, uh, let's say you're doing a marathon and it's one marathon, and that's it, and you have nothing else um, before or after it, you could probably get away with a little bit uh, higher rate of dehydration if you're prepared for it, meaning that you've trained in those situations. You're not intentionally trying to become extremely dehydrated, but it shouldn't impact your performance drastically.
0: So none of the cycling strategies where they're intentionally trying to dehydrate before the bottom of the climb, in order to lose a little bit of weight. Is that what you're saying? Is that what yeah, you're referring correct. to? So yes, the, yeah. the listeners will remember a podcast that I did. Which one is this with uh, Stavros Kavaros? Lindsay, I'm sure you're familiar with his work. Yeah. Where we w- we went through a little bit of that, uh, a little bit of that uh, dehydration research. So they'll get it. They'll get a chuckle out of it. So yeah. You're, so you're telling me at Hatsy, like with all this fancy stuff that you have. got core temperature monitors. You've got, you know, a room that can simulate almost any reasonable athletic condition possible. All the different stuff that you can put in there, ergometers, treadmills, you kind of name it. It's coming down to the preventative measures or the common preventative measures are fitness and hydration.
1: Yeah. And I would say tolerance of heat is almost a hundred percent preventative measures. You know, During a competition, you're trying to hydrate throughout or consume calories throughout, but that becomes individualized of how much you actually need. And, you know, I think a lot of the literature out there in how your body responds to heat and humidity over the last 10, 20 years, it's not telling us anything drastically new that we don't know as scientists, sports scientists. The, the way that I see the best utilization of the room, these core temperature devices, all the other technologies that athletes can wear in giving us real-time uh, biometrics as, we're, as they're doing their training helps to educate the athlete and the coach on what's actually happening internally. An athlete can really identify what's happening, but sometimes they're not good at verbalizing that to a coach. So a coach can't understand, you know, all of a sudden an athlete looks great, you know, at an elite level, an elite runner, when they're running at 100%, uh, they look great. When they're look, when they running at 90%, they actually still look really good. Um, it's not like me when I go out and run and I get tired. You can tell the difference, but uh, as our, <laughs> our professional athletes, their efficiency and economy of running is so high, it's hard to identify that, but we can actually see that what's taking place and it becomes a greater education of the impact uh, of what that means on performance.
0: So a lot of what you're doing, you're like educating the athletes and their coaches yeah. and their support staff on what's going on. I'm always curious to know with, with, with like professionals like yourself, Lindsay, cause you, you are a coach. I mean, you and I have a coaching relationship that goes back where we were colleagues for geez, 15 years now.
1: Yeah, probably a yeah. long time and you're,
0: <laughs> and you're a darn good coach. Like, how does it work with you working with other athletes and other coaches, like putting on the testing hat and then taking off the testing hat and then having to put the coaching hat on? Like how, like, like what, how does that dynamic work where you're working with other athletes that have other coaches and you have to provide counsel to both?
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I think it can be tricky because sometimes I think, you know, I can see the numbers and I can see what's happening, but then I don't actually know, you know, what's happening on a day-to-day Basis with that athlete and their coach relationship, right? So I get a, a, snip sh- a snippet of what's happening and I have very objective data that I can quantify and I can provide feedback. Um, for some athletes I see day-to-day and uh, we have a little bit easier conversations with those athletes and coaches. Um, there's a term I heard on a podcast a few years ago saying like you become a translational physiologist. Mm. So my goal is to capture the data and work on a better way to translate that data of information to coaching an athlete. So, you know, I, I can say, like, you know, this is your number, but that may not mean anything. So you have to come across a little bit as a coach, right, to understand, to have that uh, background of saying, okay, here's how we're actually going to apply it on our day-to-day basis or for a competition. Because if I just say, like, it has to be X and the coach looks at me and like, you're crazy, that's never going to happen, then that's not helpful either.
0: (laughs) I love that translational (laughs) physiologist. Let's, let's pull on that a little bit because as you said, from the onset, there's three things that you can manipulate, right? You can manipulate the heat, the humidity, and we're going to combine those into the just heat environment. Right. Mm -hmm. And you can manipulate the altitude as well. Since Tokyo is going to be the hot, probably going to be the hottest Olympics on record. Let's, and it's hot right now in Colorado Springs yeah. and all over the country where fires are burning yeah. and everything else. Um, heat's going to be the most pertinent. So what can athletes do aside from getting or actually let me pose this question a little bit differently. What are we going to see at the Tokyo Olympics? Because all of the NGBs and all the support staff and people like yourself, they're all and they already have because Tokyo was supposed to happen. They've already like put their thinking caps on and said, "Okay, how are we going to get the athletes ready for the race walk event, the marathon events, the track and field events, the cycling events, all these things that are in these hot environments? We're not going to get to see that until next year, but you probably can guess what's going to happen in terms of the different interventions that come out. What are we going to see?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think hopefully we don't see anything different than we've seen in many other uh, Olympics, at least from the U.S. I can say the U.S. is that we're going in really well prepared. Um, we're fortunate that um, almost all of our sports have the ability to complete a test event in Tokyo. Um, so when they have the opportunity to travel there, they have the opportunity to compete in a similar type of environmental condition. So for triathlon, their test event was one, exactly one year prior to the date that they would be competing in the Olympic Games. So we had a really good perspective of what the conditions are going to be like and what could, obstacles could be thrown at us um, and what we need to do to be better prepared and i feel like looking at that event as an example is that not just the u.s but a lot of the other countries had done a good job of their homework and what they needed to provide their athletes and coaches with to be prepared for competition so i think the the main things which is no surprise the use of ice vests um cooling devices has been uh, huge um i know there was a, a huge push for that um actually around the 1996 Olympics in Atlanta, because they're also quite hot and humid. And then going into Sydney in 2000, um, Sydney, Australia, those two uh, Olympics, um, there was a big heat push. So figuring out cooling vests, ice slushy drinks, all these different things. We're just finding better ways to use those and incorporate them in our day-to-day training. So it's less overt, I guess. Um, but I think the cooling vest will be the biggest thing. Um the nice thing uh, Tokyo has an infrastructure to support this is that they're all the athletes staging prior to competition and immediately after competition has uh, cooling tents, you know, where they're air conditioned and nice and cool. So um, I think, you know, we'll see athletes rather than necessarily like standing out at the finish, they'll be kind of whisked away into a cooler environment and doing their interviews in those type of environments. Um, but I think if you weren't really keen on it, you might not notice too much. Um, from at least the US and I, I believe most countries are going to be per- really well prepared in these extreme conditions. Um, so hopefully we don't see anything, you know, too catastrophic from athletes going in really underprepared.
0: If, if cooling vest is going to be the thing, and I always relate this back to the last Olympics where cupping was the thing. Right. Cupping is the that was the modality that came out of that Olympics, because all the swimmers who just happened like they're, you know, they're shirtless and you can kind of see their bodies and you can actually see the cupping marks It's Mm -hmm. very prevalent. That was the hot modality right after the last Olympics. So if cooling vests are going to be like the hot modality after this Olympics, like what is the what is the everyday practical use case for like a normal athlete that's doing when the mass participation events come out, come back, what's the normal application going to be for those, like for those types of athletes that are doing the New York city marathon or triathlon or an ultra marathon or something like that.
1: Yeah. I think if you were to do, um, you know, triathlons kind of funky in like the longer distance races, depending on the temperature body of water. So for Tokyo, the water temperature for the triathlon, it's actually quite warm. It's same with open water swimming. Um, but, you know, even athletes, if you look at the Kona um, Ironman World Championships, the water temperature is warm but not hot. So there's not a high need to use a cooling vest in that type of environment. Now, uh, same thing with New York City Marathon. Typically, the time of year, it's not blazing hot. But maybe Chicago Marathon is a there you good go. example okay. of that. There's been a couple of years where it's been really hot. I would think that you'd see more athletes wearing a cooling vest up to the starting line um, or warming up in a cooling vest prior to getting into their corral um, before the start of the race is, you know, trying to lower their core temperature and be better prepared. Um, I think two, one thing that I've seen, which it's not anything, you know, super new, but I just think I see more and more distance runners and ultra runners, uh, marathoners running with water now where, you know, five or six years ago, I think like the ultra running community was the only community you'd see like running around with like, you know, water bottles and different things. And now I feel like everybody in my neighborhood has a water bottle in their hand. So I think there's just some general education that's getting passed down of understanding, you know, I can run with a bottle on even my 15 mile run. I don't have to wait till I get to my 20 plus mile run to now I have to carry my water with me.
0: I can see a lot of people also like DIYing their own cooling vests with just cold towels, cold towels and yeah. ice, which is perfectly, I mean, that's just as, a, as effective or can be just as effective.
1: Yeah. And I mean, those are strategies like we, we've partnered with Nike and they have this really neat cooling vest that we came up with as a design for Tokyo. Um, I believe you can purchase it now. You know, they were waiting till the Olympics, but <laughs> I, I think they're probably out for distribution now. Um, but before that, and even using those, there's times when it, yeah, we still have a Ziploc bag full of ice that we're handing out to athletes, a uh, cold towel dumped in a bucket of ice, or even cold water if we can't get ice. You know, those are strategies, even though when we have all the great latest and greatest technologies, there's locations and places that we go to that all of a sudden nothing work. You can't find freezers to freeze your cooling vests, but you have an ice machine, um, so you do your best um we've also found that like using misters if you're just sitting around can really help with the fan so if you have a big a fan and a misting that can really help to lower the temperature of a space by quite a bit which then helps you to better uh thermoregulate just that environmental heat so
0: can you describe like how much of a difference that would make either in your lab because that's that's a lot of what you do is just a b testing you bring the person in the lab here's the environment just go run we'll see where you fail okay we'll do the ice vest intervention or cooling vest intervention we'll see how much of a, of a difference that makes can you broadly like paint the picture of how much of a difference does it make in a hot environment to use some sort of cooling intervention
1: yeah, so, you know, I'm, I'm fortunate that I've got access to all this and that even athletes, you know, we'll do testing in our lab and then we'll have testing out in the field and then we can even do real-life testing in competition. So these core temperature pills athletes will swallow during an event and we'll see, did we do it all right, or where did we fall short? Um, But what we've seen is by adding in these interventions of better hydration, the timing of hydration, um, using cooling devices, you know, cooling vest or warm-up strategy in a cold environment, meaning air-conditioned room rather than, you know, being outside, um, those type of things, we've been able to see a delay of the onset of their threshold of that internal core temperature by up to about 6%. So, that's a pretty significant shift over the course of a 10K. So, if we just look at a triathlon, for example. So, 6% is all the difference of getting on the podium and being like 15th yeah. in a race. Um, and uh, that can be from the run or the bike. And, and a lot of that it allows for the athlete to make better decisions because they're not uh, overheating or at their perception of the environment isn't as high. So, their reaction times are better. So... On the bike, they can hopefully, you know, make the break if that's happening, or avoid crashes or different things that could be catastrophic. Um, allow again, that six percent, even if it's one percent uh, for some athletes, that's a significant gain because we're not trying to change their training, which is the hard part you know you're not trying to do more training or less training or higher intervals we're just train changing some of the strategies around your training and if we can get get 1% out of it it's a significant gain in overall
0: performance and literally what you would be talking about is is warming up in a cool environment or warming up with the cooling vest on as like a yeah. basic intervention to get this delayed onset of their of their core temperature increasing
1: yeah exactly simple yeah. intervention yeah,
0: simple. I mean, a lot of times, I mean, a lot of times we think about like these really complex ways of, you know, the, you remember the cooling glove back in mm-hmm. when was that? Like the early two thousands when they were testing that out on a cycling yeah. ergometer. And so for, for the, uh, I'll post the in the show notes for the listeners. I'll post a link to this this device which creates a negative pressure environment around your hand, and circulates cold water uh, specifically on the palm of your hand. It's supposed to cool you off. Great, it works. But it's too complicated in an athletic environment to make much sure. of a difference. There's some yeah. applications for it, but it's too complicated for most athletic. Uh, so what we're talking about with the cooling vest is like literally just slapping some cold water in a towel and warming up that way.
1: Yeah, yeah. It, and and again, you're trying to figure out you know what you have access to. And yes, there you can make it really complicated, but at the end of the day, it's not reality. So it's just like you know maybe your pre-race workout, depending on what time of day your, your race competition happens, you're running on the treadmill inside in the air conditioned room instead of running for that 20 or 30 minutes outside. So you're just minimizing the overall st- stress from the morning and everything else before you get to the starting line of your event.
0: Okay. I'm going to pivot a little bit and ask a kind of a crazy question about the heat before we go to altitude. Yeah. You get to see all these types of athletes. At at the beginning, it was just the endurance athletes. But now it looks like you've got some of the combat sport athletes and maybe even some of the team sport athletes as Mm -hmm. well. Yeah. Which one of those athletes like handle the hot environments the best? And why do you think that is?
1: Yeah, I have not seen a specific rhyme or reason. I know there's some theories out there, but what I again, what I've seen, there's so many other factors that go into it is that uh, like I've had one athlete who can handle the heat in competition, really well, but when we included travel, it all fell apart. Um, that same athlete came in one time, and they were sick; they had a cold, and it all fell apart. So there's so many different factors that you know really impact. Um, I think there probably is something greater to it, but it's beyond my thing. If there's some genetic you know, predisposition. Again, there are theories out there on it, but I have not seen it actually work at an elite level of being like extremely true one way or another. Um, I just think overall preparation of doing all the right things, as we said, like eating well, hydrating well, being rested, you know, coming, showing up to the start and lying ready to go and being relaxed about the situation so not super high stress also makes a big difference um, in the overall outcome of how you're going to adapt and respond to the heat.
0: N- nobody can see this. This is a failure of audio, but Lindsay and I are kind of like chuckling as we're, as we're going through this conversation, because we've probably had it a hundred times as it just comes down to fitness. you yeah. know?
1: Yeah. And it's a similar thing as you're saying to altitude, right? I know probably getting a little ahead of ourselves, but you know, you have extreme mountain climbers that have climbed and summited Everest and they've done it once or twice. And on the third time, then they get altitude sickness, Yeah, you know? So there's, different reasons why and each of them they can go back and kind of have an idea of why maybe they had a cold or they were not as well going into that final peak or their their uh summit to the top or whatever it might be right so there's there's just things physiologically that if we're we're trying to minimize the um risk I guess right of what we know is can hurt performance
0: okay so let's go to altitude Sure. So you've got this room, and I'm sure uh, I'm sure a lot of the listeners out there, and even some of your athletes, when they find out that they've got this tool available to them that can go up to twenty two thousand feet. So what you said, twenty two thousand feet they're going to be like, put me at that, like, give me that, give me that dose. That's what I want. I want to train at altitude. I've heard all this awesome stuff about training high and training at altitude. That's what's going to make all my red blood cells go bananas. And I'm going to get super fit just by being exposed to this environment. But as you mentioned at the very beginning, most times you're the altitude down from yeah. our 6,000 foot, you know, living space here in Colorado Springs. Why is that the case?
1: Yeah, I mean, one, we're trying to be prepared for the events that our athletes are traveling to. So in the Olympic format, there's really very little to very few events, I guess, that even take place at altitude. There's a couple mountain bike races a year that are at a moderate altitude or altitude, but they don't exceed 10,000 feet. And then you think, okay, well, skiing that might be an event, but even when you look at their World Cup circuit, the highest mountain that they're going to is here in Colorado when they're at Breckenridge or uh, Beaver Creek. A lot of the other mountains in Europe, they're very high, but they're starting at sea level. Where Colorado, we're starting at you know six, seven thousand feet of vertical. So there, we're not at extreme altitudes very much within sport. So we don't need to prepare for that. And when we go through a lot of the scientific literature of uh, training, there hasn't been anything to show at a elite level of extreme altitude preparation, meaning training high, very high, so higher than Colorado Springs or higher than our 10,000-foot mark that allows for increased performance for endurance athletes. So what we've actually seen is that it can hinder performance. So we're limited as we go up the mountain, so to speak, our ability to perform decreases, whether it's at a threshold or a VO2 at a high intensity or anaerobic level. Um, And so really in training, we're trying not to do that. We want athletes to, you know, not decrease their ability to do more work. We want them to do more work. Um, So really going high is not really in an ideal situation for most athletes.
0: It's interesting to see like just the way that that has, the way that this, this altitude thing has perpetuated over the course of, you know, the last couple of decades, because it used to be almost de facto where any endurance athlete or any team, they would always do an altitude camp. And it's, and it means it's still prevalent, but it's becoming less and less. So, because at least in my observation, I want to hear your take on this as well. But at least in my observation, we're noticing kind of like two things is one, you do see people's decreased capacity to do work. And sometimes they get worse after the altitude camp or the altitude exposure, or however you're doing. They're training at altitude, they're living altitude, or some some combination of both of those. And then the 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 second thing is, is we're starting to realize that the camps themselves. Because it's such an isolated environment, that's what creates this super compensation. This really positive benefit is because they've gotten rid of all of the distractions and all they can focus on is training. It's not the altitude. It's the other. It's like all the other things that are kind of like wrapped around the, the the quote unquote camp. I don't know if you've noticed that in your dealings with athletes as well, though.
1: I mean, I think it depends on what sport group. So, for a lot of our track and field athletes, our distance athletes, so athletes that are 5K, 10K marathon, they, we actually do quite a bit of altitude training. So, um, whether we have a group that lives and trains here in Colorado Springs, um, we have quite a few groups that come out to Woodland Parks, so that's right around 8,500 feet. But we don't go above that. We know that once we start going higher than that 8,500 foot mark for living at altitude, performance decreases. Um, And we do the same thing with our triathlon groups and cycling groups. Um, We have quite a few cyclists right now that are out here in Colorado getting ready for the world road world championships, which still have not yet been canceled and they're going to take place in about five weeks. Um, So we're moving forward as is. Um, So we've got a few of our women out here getting ready, doing altitude precursor before they head over to Europe for racing. Um, But I think it's a combination of things. You know, again, I'm fortunate that I've got the tools and technology to assess an athlete coming to altitude. So there's a few factors that we always want to look at prior to coming to altitude is that do you have the um, red blood cells and iron in your body to tolerate that initial adaptation that's going to take place? So if we come to altitude and we're already at a deficit um, for various reasons, then we're not going to reap the benefits. And I think a lot of athletes don't understand what that looks like. So prior to an athlete coming to altitude, you know, two to four or even six weeks, we'll get blood testing done. And so if we have to have an intervention of uh, nutritional factors, rest and recovery, different type of training, we'll do so before we come so they reap those benefits. And then once they're at altitude, we do blood testing as well. And then we also have a testing called total hemoglobin mass so that we can do that I'll do at the training center where we're measuring the hemoglobin, which is a part of the blood that carries all those oxygen molecules, which is part of the iron and things that help to transport oxygen throughout the body um, that we can see is an athlete, are they gaining, are they acclimatizing to altitude or are they actually not acclimatizing and becoming more fatigued? And then we have to go back, is it the altitude or is it the training prescription, right, with the coach and the intensity, or is it being prescribed correctly and the athlete's not executing it correctly? So then we have to kind of go through those factors as well to figure out where did we make the mistake. Um, but we've been able to see, you know, with athletes and doing it correctly, um, up to like a 3 to 4% gain in hemoglobin mass, which is uh, uh, your ability to produce more red blood cells. And if we're doing that, that is helpful. Now that doesn't translate to a three or 4% gain in performance, but it helps your ability to perform and to do, to do more work.
0: So, so so when you have the athletes that are coming up to the Woodland Park scenario and Mm -hmm. to describe that a little bit further, Woodland Park's a town that's, uh, that's higher than Colorado Springs. It's just West of Colorado Springs. It's, it's about 8,500 feet and that's where the athletes would reside somewhere around that uh, that altitude and they come down to 6,000 or 6,500 feet in Colorado Springs and actually do their training, you're doing a blood panel on those athletes before they come out to that type of training camp. What are the things specifically that you're looking for in that blood panel to say, okay, you're a good candidate and you're not?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think the simple ones are like your red blood cell count and your hematocrit um, and your hemoglobin. So the the really basic um, blood markers. Then we start looking at the iron levels. So what are their iron levels? What are their ferritin levels, which is the stored iron in your body, which helps to uh, carry those oxygen molecules, again, uh, throughout the body for ability to do more work and to help produce more red blood cells. So if we have certain athletes and their ferritin values, that stored iron is below a certain mark, and it's a little bit different for each uh, demographic of athlete, Um then we say well, you're actually not coming out to altitude until yeah. we can get the number up high enough. Um, because when you can't do the training that you need to and recover from it effectively at altitude. So it, it becomes uh, a waste of time. And then, you know, you don't want to lose weeks on training because of just going to where your team is or what you thought was a good, a good idea. Um, but I do agree with you. I mean, I think, you know, similar to what we are talking before the podcast started is like with all these professional sports, they're going to these isolated environments and they can really focus on their sport and their team. When a lot of athletes go to a quote-unquote altitude training camp, it's the same concept. They're either going to a rented house or a hotel, and it's really a, a period of time that's focused around training and recovery. So we're trying to minimize additional life stresses of, you know, potentially family, friends, your local environment, you're just focusing on training, good nutrition, hydration, and recovery. And, and I think, you know, when you get all that right, then really good things can happen out of
0: it. Yeah, but people think they, because it's called an altitude camp, they're like, oh, I got better at the altitude camp. And then that's right. how that word <laughs> spreads, right? <laughs> well, it's the altitude camp must be the altitude that made you better. Sometimes it's not always the case. Sometimes it's altitude but usually as we know right performance and improvement is always multifactorial
1: yeah
0: um yeah. i want to dig a little bit into so the blood work that you do in advance of the athletes coming to altitude you kind of presented this broad array of things that you are looking at and the listeners are going to want to know like what what the answer is and there are a lot of um and the reason i bring this up is cuz i did a i did a previous podcast with Sean Arnott who is a, like a specialist in all these different types of tests. But a lot of athletes will either get blood testing from their primary care physician or, or they'll use a third party vendor like, you know, one of the labs or inside tracker or something like that. And inevitably what they get is what their values are in comparison to a reference range. And or some sort of stoplight system, you know, red is bad, yeah. yellow is you're okay, and green is you're, is good. How does that compare to what you are actually doing as a practitioner and looking at what the athlete is coming to the table in terms of their blood values and saying, okay, you're good to go and you're not?
1: Yeah. So um, basically, I'll work with our medical team. Um, and if there's a team doctor as well, we'll all take a look at it. And even our dietician. So we're all looking at it for different reasons. Medical is looking at it for overall health. You know, the dietitian is looking at it from a nutritional perspective for supplementation. I'll be looking at it from a performance perspective of, you know, red light, green light, go to altitude or not, or decrease training, or we need to do that. Um, I think the... The, what you mentioned earlier is that yes, an athlete will go, or just a person will go, and you get here's your range, and that range is just based off the general American population. And it's one, it's really broad, yeah. um, and two, it's not always for athletes. Um, so what we do with athletes over time is that yes, you have your recommended range, which is just you know the the general recommendations, but then we create an athlete specific range, but it's not specific; it's not athlete specific, meaning all track and field, 5K runners, blood profile should be X. It's actually like athlete A, here's your profile, and here's your highs, here's your lows in that range, and where are you relative to your normal. So uh, as an example, like we have athletes for um, hemoglobin, when we look at it, they could be on the normal high side of the, the range of your general range, but that might mean that it's just a normal number for them. So it's not actually high. Um, and then we want to say, okay, well, what do we need to do to like, where did we go wrong where it's not normal high when we thought it should actually be higher than it is? Is it a hydration thing? Is it, you know, excessive fatigue and not enough recovery or whatever it might also other factors it could be.
0: Yeah. The, the, I'm glad you mentioned that Lindsay, because one of my pet peeves with a lot of the, uh, blood testing companies out there is they are always comparing it to the reference ranges. And they typically don't do as good of a job as I would like them to do, comparing it longitudinally with the athlete, which is always what we're doing as a coach. We're looking at, okay, where were you in January? Where were you in April? Where were you in September? You know, whatever the testing frequency type of it, whatever the testing frequency is and comparing it to that individual athlete. And they could always be green. But if you get one number that's like 40 percent lower Than their previous testing value, but it's still in the reference range, you would look at that and go, no, this is a problem. We got to figure out what's going on here.
1: Right. Yeah. And I I think, you know, the hard thing with that is that, you know, how frequently do you want to get blood tests? So I would say, you know, depending if you're, if you're healthy, a healthy check-in in an ideal situation would be like four times a year, once a quarter. Um, now, uh, if you have, going to altitude for altitude training camps or doing different things you're trying to test things you might get things more frequently so if we have an athlete that comes in with low iron we'll put an intervention together and we'll do another retest about six weeks after maybe four weeks if, if we're on a time crunch scale to see have they responded to that intervention but at that point we're also not always doing a complete panel of all the other factors we're just looking at um, the red, your typical CBC, your uh, typical blood count and the iron panel to say, OK, the things that we put in place, are, is the athlete being compliant and are we getting the results that we hope to see happen?
0: hundred percent. OK, so we, we've talked a little bit about an altitude camp, right? Athletes go to altitude to train to get better And, you know, that works out a lot. But a lot of listeners to this podcast, when they see the title, I haven't made the title up yet, it's going to be something like heat and altitude, because those are sexy, you know, (laughs) title names, and it'll draw more people into it. But it's also your wheelhouse, obviously, because we want to talk about it. A lot of athletes looking at that will will put themselves in the scenario of Oh, I'm going to the Leadville Trail 100. And I live in Chicago, or I'm Pikes Peak Marathon is this weekend, this podcast will come out after the Pikes Peak Marathon. But a lot of people from sea level in a normal year will come out to the Pikes Peak Marathon. They'll be, that'll be their first exposure to altitude, and they will want to know, what do I need to do to get ready for this competition environment that is at high altitude? And now that I'm thinking about it, that's probably one of the top three questions that I get asked in any format, whether I do a talk at a running store or whether it's on Instagram or whatever. What do I do? What do I do to get ready for the altitude? And I give my standard stock (laughs) answer because I've been I've been asked it so times, so many times. But with all the tools that you have, what would you say to that person who's going to a high altitude environment to compete, and they're coming from a sea level environment where they have to train?
1: Yeah. Well, I hope our answer is going to be pretty similar. They will, (laughs) trust me. (laughs) It goes back to the hydration. Get as fit as you can before you come out. And you either want to come out as close to your day of competition as possible, or you have to come out like two to three weeks before to get the climatization. And those are the two standard things. But, you know, even here in town, I have a handful of running friends that are doing the Pikes Peak Marathon. And they go up to the top of Pikes Peak, and they do the three-two-one standard <laughs> workout where they run three miles down, up, three up, down two, up two, down one, up one. And they do that quite a bit, and it takes all day to drive up to the top of the mountain, do yeah. their workout. And they would say, is that a good one to do? And I said, well, <laughs> I think it's good to do because it gives you experience of what the trail looks like at the top of the mountain, but it's not necessary from your time management and the fatigue that you get from it. That you don't have to train at 14,000 feet to be able to run at 14,000 feet. Now, if you're living there all the time, yes, that's a different factor, but if most of these races, even an ultra race, you're going up a peak and then you're coming back down. So hopefully your time at the at the higher extreme altitudes is minimal in the grand scheme of things, and pacing becomes critical to understand your pacing, understand your hydration needs, um, your nutritional needs at those altitudes. That's really what I think helps when you train at altitude to understand how you have to actually cut back um, on your overall, uh, I guess, pacing power, you know, your overall output of energy at that high altitude.
0: This is so boring. It's just get fit. I know. We can rename the title to just get fit to get ready for hot and altitude and I know. I mean, I
1: wish I could say like I wish if I if I wrote a book, you know, I would try to be selling it, but then it'd be like that magic pill of like if you take this, it's gonna do everything for you. You know, at the end of the day, you have to go back to the foundation of like tried and true things of just general physiology. Like you can't overcome that with any type of like magic pill or crazy intervention in a one-off situation.
0: I'm so glad that you mentioned the three, two, one workout. And let me, I think this is worth explaining because a lot of people are going to be scratching their heads on it. So the Pike's Peak Marathon starts in Manitou Springs, which is like 6,700 feet. It goes to the top of uh, Pike's Peak, which is over 14,000 feet and then goes back down. It's a a proper marathon. It was actually the first marathon that had a woman in it, like way before the Boston Marathon. Not a lot of people know that. She just came back for what anniversary was it, Lindsay, of her running? I, know, it? I
1: was reading about it on a newsletter somewhere. I can't remember. Um
0: it I was like, know. it was either the 50th or the 60th year that yeah, she had it done something. it. And yeah. she got up on the scaffolding. Like she's, you know, in her late 80s or early 90s now. She got up on the, on the scaffolding that was on the you know the start line that's over there in Manitou. Just like a pro. I was watching and going, oh my gosh, that's awesome. That is my goal right there. Yeah. But anyway, so the Pikes Peak Marathon <laughs> goes up to the top, top of Pikes Peak and comes down. And a ridiculously common workout that you will see all of the locals do. And when I moved here and I did the Pikes Peak Marathon for four or five years in a row or whatever, I vividly remember everybody in town. They would all group up and they would drive to the top of Pikes Peak because there's a toll road that goes to the top and you can drive your car up there. And they start at the top at 14,000 feet and then go down three miles, which just happens to be tree line. There's an aid Mm -hmm. station there and things like that. And there's a sign. So it becomes a good marker. They'd run down three miles and they'd run back to the top and they'd run down two miles and they'd run up to the top. And they run down one mile and then run up to the top. So it's called a three, two, one workout. And like Lindsay was mentioning, it takes all day because you have to drive to the summit, which is like a two hour drive. You have to do the workout, which is really not that long. Like the distance of the workout is not that long, but it takes all day because you're moving so slow and you're above 12,000 feet the entire time. <laughs> it's um, It takes all day and you have to drive back down. And I remember first thinking about it, going, oh, wow, that's a really badass workout. Like you're above 12,000 feet the whole time and it must be so hard and you're sucking wind and it's going to be so good for you. But then I thought about it with my coaching hat. I'm like, that's dumb. Like that's just a dumb workout.
1: Yeah. From a physiology perspective, it doesn't make any sense. (laughs) (laughs) From an emotional, like I feel prepared. I get it. There you go. But to the amount of that athletes, local athletes do that workout, I just think it's crazy. Like, I, it's just not a good use of your time from training and recovery. So.
0: But the, the practical implications of this is there will be a lot of athletes that are going to a high altitude event and they want to go and do some course recon. And typically what they get drawn to is the higher altitude sections of the course because they feel they need to cover those sections for some reason. Part of that some reason is I'm going to get this physiological adaptation for run from running or cycling or whatever it is from running at this high altitude, 12,000 feet. And what we're saying is that's dumb. If you have a reason to run that section just for a psycho emotional reason or, or whatever, great, go ahead and do it. But if you think that you're like boosting your red blood cell count or getting a good workout in or whatever, there are probably better ways to skin that cat.
1: Yeah, for sure. And an example, so a CTS athlete that I still work with, he uh, summited Aconcagua a couple of years ago. And he actually works at the hospital next to the training center. And he is, uh, the, was the oldest guy on his expedition, a three-week hike up this mountain that goes to 23,000 feet. And so what we did was we'd come into my room in, in the morning, we'd like have him come in and slowly work on hiking with his pack up to 60 pounds. Um, and we took the room up to about 20,000 feet was the highest that we went just for safety perspective. Um, and I said, we can do this as long as I can poke and prod you. But really, the main goal is for you to understand your pacing and what that means at that altitude, just so you have an idea of what your breathing feels like so you're not going to be too stressed. And we probably did this, uh, I don't know, once or twice a week for three or four weeks uh, uh, for a training block. And for that purpose, he said he, one, was the only person on the trip that didn't have any issues. He was the most fit guy there and the oldest guy. But he said a lot of it was just as they got to the higher altitudes, he had a better idea of how to pace himself right so it wasn't an altitude acclimatization that we're trying to achieve it was a educational side of things of when i have this i have to now be okay with a you know a 20 minute mile walking pace or whatever it might have slowed down to or running at altitude you know you're normally running at an 8 minute pace down here at 7000 feet but up there at 14 minute pace and that's equivalent and understanding what that uh, caloric expenditure means and, you know, how many more calories you need to be taking in or less calories. Um, I feel like that's where those really training high at an extreme altitude is helpful, but you're not getting as an acclimatization out of it. It's a educational uh, for pacing for your ultimate performance.
0: So here's the practical piece of that, right? We've already ruled out that the physiology piece of it is kind of null and void. If we've got the scenario of a person from Chicago or Florida or whatever coming out to Leadville, coming out to the Pikes Peak Marathon, and as a coach, you can put your coaching hat on. We want to give them that experience of pacing and nutrition and things like that of running at 10,000 feet, running at 12,000 feet. Then what do you do?
1: Yeah, I think you, one, you actually just have, you're never going to be able to exactly mimic it. So, you know, some people say like, oh, you can breathe through a straw and that'll mimic, you know, being at altitude. Well, that's not really what we want to do. (laughs) I think it's important to, one, try to slow the pace down a little bit. Um, I have a friend who actually lived in Chicago and does the marathon every year in her first year. She's like, I couldn't believe how hard it was. And I said, well, how much of it were you actually walking at the top rather than running? And she said a lot of it and did you ever try hiking you know or walking in any of your long runs and the answer is no so she wasn't prepared for the biomechanics shift of like hiking in kind of loose gravelly sand compared to always running so part of that you just have to try to find even if it's not at altitude just trying to find a hill where you're having to hike up something so uh, you're mimicking maybe the conditions or the Uh, terrain conditions rather than the environmental conditions. And then also being okay and understanding that, yes, I have to slow down by 5% or 6% or 15%, whatever it might be. And then that's actually okay as well.
0: I've, I've, I've had this experience where I've been, and I don't know if you have as well, watching the Pikes Peak Marathon is I'll come down from the top to like the two mile marker. So that's like 2,500 feet or 20, or sorry, 12,500 feet or 12,800 feet or something like that and uh, i'll just watch the athletes go by and you know cheer them on it's it's a cool spot because you know the out and back course you can see the leaders come back and everybody's you know kind of cheering each other on but i always have i always have this um um I always have this vivid memory of the people going up will look at their watch and then get this <laughs> dejected look on their face because they've inevitably looked at their pace and it's like 25 minute miles or something like that which yeah. is kicking ass at that altitude but not normal in any other circumstance.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And it's just, I don't know how, you know, that's one where a coach can come into play and help you work through some of those things and be better prepared and experience is helpful too. But yeah, I mean, that's just a, a side part of, I think hopefully, if you are not prepared for it and you do it the first time, the second time you better be prepared for it and understand what that is. Right. So I can understand the first time being a little bit under prepared and showing up and not, uh, you know, understanding the impacts of altitude, but for, you know, training at altitude athletes, I coach, whether they're a weekend warrior athlete or high level athlete is like, again, let's get as fit as we can. So when you're at that altitude, your body can handle, those conditions even better. So you can make better decisions of saying a 25 minute pace is actually good. And I'm not terrible because it gives you a moment to look around and think, okay, I'm actually keeping in line with everyone else I've been with, or I'm gaining on people um, at that pace. Yep. You know, and, I, and again, I think when you're more fit, you can make better connections in those extreme conditions, whatever they may be.
0: So Lindsay, you've got all the tools yeah, and you've got access to even more stuff that is not at the training center. Like you can call the people over at Hypoxico and you can arrange for, you know, this, that, or the other. I think, I think a lot of people want to know at what point does it make sense to start throwing in some of these other tools that we commonly see for athletes to get prepared for the altitude, like an altitude tent, intermittent hypoxic exposure. Like at what point do you look at the situation as, as a coach or as a physiologist work working with these types of athletes and say, okay, we need, you need to do something that's outside of the environment that we have at the training center. What does that look like?
1: Yeah. I mean, you probably listeners won't like my response. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, and I, to be honest, it doesn't, it's the same thing with some of our elite athletes that if we, if I think you have 5% more to gain in your day-to-day training, then we don't need to get fancy equipment. So, you know, I have athletes and they want to get into the room and they want to do training. I feel like some of our athletes kind of see that as a rite of passage of like, I'm in this room. I'm like, I'm an Olympian. I really made it. This is kind of like the icing on the cake. And part of that is saying like, if, again, if you still have 5% more to gain in your career. Do we need to go in the room or do we need to just do our bread and butter, our, our typical training? So I think, you know, until we get to that point where you think, you know, you're really at the, at the end of your ability to keep gaining fitness, it's not necessary. Now, is it fun to use? For sure. So if you have the ability and you want to use it, I think it's okay to use altitude tents and other devices, but we also want to try them out well in advance to a competition. So if you're getting ready for the Pikes Peak Marathon, as an example, I don't want to use my altitude tent for the first time, you know, five or six weeks prior to competition. I hope we do one or two or three cycles of using it and understanding how you feel, how that impacts your training. So we actually can do it correctly. So, you know, it's the same thing with biking and I'm the, I'm uh, you know, uh, do it too. Is that, yeah, I got a new bike and I want it to be the lightest bike as I go up the mountain. Like, I get it. I want the lighter equipment, the newer things. Um, But then you want to make sure that when you have it, you know how to use it properly properly.
0: <laughs> uh, so boring. Just get fit. Don't use all really the tools. Is. Well, I, I always come back to, and I'm going to give proper credit to this since it's your husband. I, I always come back to a, a quote that that your husband, Dean Golich, I'm going to get him on the podcast too. If we can ever get like his schedule arranged to go and do yeah. it, that <laughs> chance. Um, but I, I always remember very early in my coaching career when dean was beating the crap out of me for something i did wrong you know and i mean what i mean by that is is like he was giving me a lecture for something that i had like incorrectly assessed with an athlete yes Not yeah, he's, physically and he's beaten. great at that he's very <laughs> good at that we've we've i had adam uh, Palford, uh on the podcast earlier and we reminisced about some of the hunger games days oh geez of, <laughs> of him, dean being the primary instigator of that but anyway i remember this he, he had a, He he did make he made a lot of impactful statements and and had a big impact on on my career and one of those impactful statements was when we were talking about altitude and we we're going through all of the different scenarios – this is right after the altitude uh, clinic uh, at the training center there several years ago. We are going over all of these different scenarios of when you would use a tent and how you would use it and what the duration is and, you know, blah, 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 blah. I probably spent two days talking about this. You probably remember this uh, now that I'm going through the story. And at <laughs> the end of the whole thing, he looks at everybody and all of us were rather young coaches at the time. And he goes, listen, you guys can talk all of this mumbo jumbo that you want to, but remember – you should win two world championships, not just one, but two, and then you can think about using an altitude tent for an athlete because they have so much more to gain just with training and the fundamentals and nutrition and psychology and all of these other things. That if you're start if you're talking about your athlete that's coming to the Pikes Peak Marathon that's going to run a six hour Pikes Peak Marathon, which is admirable, and you want to use an altitude for them, look at the lower hanging fruit. Yep. So. Even with the elite athletes, there there's normally lower hanging fruit.
1: Yeah, it's true. I mean, the for an altitude perspective in our room, I say no more than I say yes for athletes coming in for how to incorporate into your training for that exact reason is that maybe the timing's not right or we need to improve in a different area and that's not how the best use of your time and ability for training and recovery and all the other factors, so.
0: Well, I'm sure in the environment that you have, they want to do anything and everything legally possible to get an edge. Because, I mean, 1% is the difference between, you know, metal, no metal, making the finals, like those little things. And so they're curious, will that actually make a difference? And if it will, they'll take it on. But the fact that that you, of all people, when that 1% to 2% does make a huge difference, huge difference are saying no more than you're saying yes. I think that that says a lot.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's easy to say yes. <laughs> <laughs> really hard to say no and then explain why. <laughs> Do you get a
0: lot of pushback and say, like, no, but I need this. Like, set me up at 10. I the do.
1: I do. And I think um, one, cause yeah, you know, the athlete really, again, they don't quite understand. They think they're doing everything they can, right? In reality, if they take a step back, you think, okay, I probably could be doing a little bit better in X, Y, Z. Um, and the other thing, it's this really neat, shiny object. That's tangible. Like you're walking into a room rather than just like having to like do one more interval or get another hour of sleep where you don't see those benefits right away where you can do the altitude training and you actually do see responses your return on your investment i guess in the training pretty quickly but the other stuff it takes time and it takes a lot more energy you know in the bigger picture to actually get the reward um so yeah it's tricky uh but it's sport you know and i think once you sit down with athletes and coaches and go through it they totally get it and and understand how to use it um And the reason why. And then we plan ahead of, you know, if it doesn't work this cycle, then how do we, how are we going to do it next cycle? Which, you know, I think one thing that COVID has been, uh, I think, really great for athletes is that it's given us an ability to say, like, put the brakes on. We have a whole year to continue to prepare to be at our best. And without any competitions, which I know for the most of us, it's been challenging because we like going out on our weekend racing, but from an elite perspective, I think it's been really helpful because it's given everybody a time to do a big foundation block of training that they normally never can do because they're chasing points all over the world to qualify for the Olympics. So it's given us the ability to like take a step back and do the hard work and ultimately be better prepared and to use these technologies of altitude and to heat and acclimatization over time and not squeeze them to a three month period. But now I have 10 months, 12 months with some athletes of how can we better manage this and, and get a better return on our training investment that we're putting in. So
0: it's the way it should be yeah you it, know?
1: It's, yeah it's the way it should be but it's definitely not in the world of you know olympic sport so right
0: because you're always chasing the next thing i mean we have this thing in ultra marathon where everybody is just they're race happy right they want to yeah. do one race another race they'll race eight or ten times a year and there's been a lot of commentary and I've i've been part of this commentary that has gone along the lines of well since we don't have any races to chase are all of the races in 2021 or God forbid 2022, whenever they start coming back, (laughs) are we going to see course records drop, world records drop and things like that left and right because of this altered landscape of what the training environment has looked like for the last year?
1: Yeah, and I think the answer to that is yes. I mean, the 5K world record was just broken. Smashed. uh, Yeah, just a few days ago. And, you know, when you go through their preparation that was one of the things that he said. He said, I actually had time to focus on training. I wasn't having to go to these track meets to make money and to qualify, you know, my spot as an athlete or my team as a country. Um, you know, I could just focus on my training and all of a sudden a world record is broken, I think, and it had stood for what, 16 years um, yeah. in the 5K. And, and so it, it's possible that in 2021, we're going to see world records for a lot of timed events drop, you know, for certain courses.
0: Have you seen, we were planning on talking about this because this is going to be like heat and altitude, but I do want to get into part of how COVID is impacting the Olympics from your perspective. Have you, relating to that theme, have you seen a lot of athletes like overarching training architecture change once they knew that, okay, it's 2021, here are the dates, you know, we're not going to be doing much for 2020. Did you see a market change in that?
1: Um. With my sports, not necessarily. I mean, I think one of the big things is that rather than, uh, you know, trying to push through the the spring when everything started to get canceled, um, we just told everyone said, Hey, let's stop. Let's take a season break right now. Um, You know, anywhere from like one week to two weeks to three weeks for some athletes, something that, you know, that's a long break for a lot of athletes three weeks that they haven't taken um, for many years. And then it allowed us to say, okay, when they came back, we know we have 13 months of training. And we just, we looked at the calendar and then just basically said, we're going to only focus on the Olympics. And if there's any events along the way, we'll come back and fill those in and, you know, reconfigure our planning. Um, But ultimately it's, I feel like it's been positive for the programs that I work with. Um, One, you know, cycling athletes could still go out and ride their bikes every day. They weren't stuck inside. Sports like boxing and wrestling and swimming, they were really impacted initially from Covid, and I think that was a lot a uh, bigger challenge for those groups. But cycling, triathlon, running, they could still do all their training. So I feel like it it's it mentally, it's negative, but from a physiological perspective, it's pretty ideal in the timeline that they have to now regroup, recover, and rebuild for the next ten months getting ready for the games.
0: Yeah, because when they announced the Olympics, it was like in May or June. Is that right? Yeah,
1: yeah, I can't remember something around then. Yeah.
0: So the like the picture that you're kind of painting is almost like a post World Championships type of setup, where they take a pretty hard break, and then they've got in the Olympics case, this is you know 13 months, but in a World Championship case, it's usually like three, four, six, eight months to where they have their next kind of like big competition. Yeah. Wow. But then the fact, I think the fact that there will, it's highly unlikely that there will be a lot of events until then. That's the thing that's really different.
1: Yeah, it is tricky. And, um, you know, I think everybody is trying to figure out what that means. And again, for some, it's not an issue. You know, I feel like with our elite level athletes, um, that they're very internally motivated. So, they don't necessarily have to have a competition throughout the buildup to think like I need to have two or three peaks leading into the Olympics. Like everyone is okay with like, I'm good peaking for my competition on August 3rd or whatever date it might be that. Uh, and I think that's the, a little bit of a, a different mentality than someone like myself where I'm like, I kind of need a carrot to keep myself going and motivated yeah. day in and day out. Um, that, that, you know, that timeline 10 months, 12 months from now, that's enough motivation, no matter what, you know, to get up every day and to do what, what they need to get done.
0: Have you guys been able to test just as frequently there? Was it like shut down for Yeah,
1: we've been shut down. So um, still right now, we're not doing any uh, physical testing. So I can do testing, uh, like not in our labs or performance labs. So no testing like VO2 max testing, um, lactate testing or blood testing. We're not doing anything um, in that close proximity at this point. Um, I'm sure we'll get back to that here pretty soon. Um, But really, we can do any testing that I can keep an appropriate and safe Distance from from an athlete, um, and that's anywhere between six to twelve feet, depending on the intensity and how many people are in a in a in a room. So the good thing with our sports is that there's so much wearable technology, is that we can still do a lot of training and a lot of testing, minus taking blood lactates or um, you know other type of blood values. Uh, or tri- typical like VO2 value, but um, I could get a machine set up and have an athlete run and kind of then step back six to 12 feet, you know, and monitor the the cart and different things while they're doing it. So we haven't done that, but we have all the equipment and set up to do so um, when the time comes. Um, but we're getting there. I would say, uh, like I mentioned earlier, that road world championships are still happening. We have a few athletes, there are quite a few athletes here in town right now. So the velodrome in town is back up. Um, I've been going in a couple times a week there, being there with the athletes and the coaches and getting back into training, but we all have our masks on, we're all keeping our distance, our our training times are longer because we can only have so many athletes at the velodrome at one time. Um, so what might normally have been a two or three hour training session or a day turns into a six hour day because we have to have multiple groups, but the athletes can still get in their training. They're still getting the coaching feedback and the data that they need to, to, you know, keep moving forward.
0: Yeah. It's weird, man. It's really weird. <laughs> really weird. Yeah, it is crazy. But I mean, you, if athletes will figure it out, right? I mean, if we've learned anything, with working with a lot of high level athletes is they always find a way. They always figure it out.
1: Yeah. Yes.
0: <laughs> All right, Lindsay. Cool. We're gonna let you go.
1: Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate it. Um, I'm looking forward to listening to the podcast and all future podcasts that you have. But let me know if you have any questions or anything else along the way on altitude or heat. I'm here.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate your time, Lindsay. But more importantly, I've always appreciated your uh, your counsel and like being a colleague of yours over the years. You're smart as a whip. You, as the listeners now know, you're very pragmatic. <laughs> in, in the advice that you give everybody from the elite athletes to myself to, you know, everyday athletes that we work with. And um, I've always thought that the practitioners that work in the sports science field that can be that translational physiologist is that the term that you use i'm gonna totally steal that from you now i stole it
1: from someone i can't remember i heard it on a podcast and i was like
0: i'm using that that. okay (laughs) we, we tend to recycle and borrow things from everybody anyway so i don't think anybody's gonna get offended but the practitioners that are in the sports science field that can take the information that we can derive from laboratory settings and bring them into a real world application those are few and far between because all too often we want to use all the tools that we have available. We want to use all the technology. We want to use all of the data, even to the detriment of the end user, which are the athletes. And you do not do that. You take what you need and you leave aside what you don't. And the manifestation of that is just get fit. Great.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's simple.
0: (laughs) (laughs) All right. I love it. We're going to let you go, Lindsay. I hope to see you down the line. We'll have our masks on and everything, but good luck to the athletes and uh, good luck to you and your group in Tokyo.
1: Yeah. Thanks so much. I appreciate it.
0: And there you have it. There you go. Appreciate the heck out of Lindsay, as I mentioned on the podcast over the course of however many years I've known her for her counsel and appreciate her time that she spent with us on the podcast today. Hope everybody found that enlightening. If you do get the chance and after the COVID-19 pandemic starts to wind down. Do yourself a favor, go to the Olympic Training Center and take one of their tours. It is absolutely fascinating. They go by a lot of these different uh, areas of the Training Center that Lindsey uh, mentioned that the athletes have access to, but they open it up to the public and they do it in a really insightful way where sometimes the staff of the Training Center will take you around and many times the athletes themselves will actually take you around. and. I'm not a big person for a lot of the tourist things that you can do in normal tourist towns, but this is one that I think is definitely worth it. So if you're ever in town, do yourself a favor, go to the training center and take that tour. Appreciate to all of the listeners out there, if you've not had the chance, skip on over to Apple Podcasts and give this podcast a rating or review. It means the world to me when I see those five-star ratings come across the wire. Appreciate everybody listening today. We will see you out on the trails.